Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former British paratrooper and member of 22 SAS, John Graham. Now, John is also known as John Geddes, the author of Spearhead Assault, about his time in the Falklands War, and Highway to Hell, working in Iraq as a military contractor. So we discuss a host of topics, from his early life in the UK, his journey into the military, Northern Ireland, the Battle of Goose Green, war in the Middle East, the world of military contracting, close protection, mental health, leadership, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find, because this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you John Graham. Enjoy. Obviously, you have Geddes out there, you have Graham. In 2023, yep. what do you like to be referred to these days? Well, it's, it's um, you know, lots of writers have uh, um, pen names, you know. Uh, but I have an origin from uh, the pen name. It was, it was written by uh, um, it was a friend of mine who did a book called uh, CQB, Close Border Battle. And... Um, he wanted to mention me in the book. I mentioned all the way through uh, that book. I was serving a serving soldier at the time uh, with my own regiment. And uh, he asked me if he could name me by name. And I'd rather, as a security measure, uh, not have my real name out while I was with um, uh, Brit SF. So he said, can I call you another name? I've got this great guy who's, who's dead now. Uh, and uh, he's a great friend of mine, great, great, great uh, um, a mentor. And uh, his name was Geddes. Can I call you John Geddes? I said, yeah, that's fine. So uh, CQB came and went. Um, and then we, we were contacted by uh, a media outlet to, to uh, would I like to do a book? On contracting in in uh, in Iraq, um, and I said yeah, and uh, we decided to use for the the genre, um, keep the, the name Geddes going because that's associated with the same guy that's in CQV, you know, and maybe it meant, meant it made sense that way. Now I don't have a security problem; I'm a civilian just like everybody else, and uh, you know everybody knows where I live, and I don't care. Uh, uh, but the thing is, it's it's it's. Uh, I keep the, I get my own name out there because that's my real life experience, and uh, the book name, uh, to to associate one book after the other, and that makes sense. So either or. 
Beautiful. Well, that's already the intro. We're already on the on the recording now, so we'll leave that because that's a great start to break the ice with you. Um, so, for people listening, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, this is my uh, training training theater. Um, it's, it's it's it isn't a professional studio. Uh, the, the 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 I have no courses on. I, I, I train um, contractors. Have have done for for a long long time. Um, we've, we've turned out male and female, uh, probably 1,500 contractors in the last um, 19 years, close to close to 20 years. And uh, proud of that fact. This is so. This is this is my property. We won't get disturbed. It's a it's a um, um, it's a secure environment. As 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 uh, in as much as we won't be disturbed. Um, and this is where I teach, and and uh, and if I ever have a, um, a show like yours, which I'm seriously thinking about doing, I'm learning all the time, and uh, I, I fancy it. Uh, this is the kind of place I I would do it. I mean, I'm I'm in Hereford at the moment, so uh, I'm I'm at home. Brilliant. Well, actually, my part of my family is is born and bred in Hereford. It's funny that obviously is the origin of um, the SAS as well. I want to start at the very beginning of your timeline, though, before we get to your special forces career. Tell me where you were born, and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Yeah, well, well, um, the the uh, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I was my my parents post. Second World War, my dad was uh, uh, in the engineers and he fought in uh, El Alamein um, in, 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 uh, in North Africa, uh, campaign with the uh, Desert Rats, as they were known in them days. Uh, and after the war, opportunities in a newly found state within the, the British Empire called uh, Rhodesia, was uh, created and great opportunity for people um, leaving leaving the forces, making making a new life um, in, in in a foreign land, foreign culture, and uh, taking their skills and, and and procedures over there. He was a builder, and um, him and his partner built. Uh, Huge tracts of, 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 of housing developments in a place called uh, um, uh, Zimbabwe. Oh, sorry, sorry, uh, Bulawayo, which is which was was then Rhodesia, is now Zimbabwe, um, and that that was my 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 kids were taken out of England to Rhodesia, and I was born there, so. Uh, uh, Spent my infancy there. Uh, Dad got uh, he, he was he, he was hit during the war. He was wounded in action, and uh, it was a closed head injury. And we knew this all the way through our life. You know, my mother used to tell me about him. Uh, he died at a very young age. He died when I was uh, he was forty. I was about thirteen, uh, and 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 uh, he suffered a, a massive brain hemorrhage, and uh, and. Consequently, I had to give up the business. He got his share of the business out. Uh, my mother drove us all back uh, to England and started a, a new life back up north 
in uh, Newcastle, Newcastle upon Tyne. So that was the that was the, that was my sort of uh, immediate origins. Then grew up uh, a Geordie lad up north uh, until seventeen and, and about seventeen years old. I left home. When I looked up, I think it was John Geddes. Rhodesia came up, but it was, if I'm not mistaken, someone who was involved with the Special Forces community, but he was born in 1912. Was that the mentor that your friend was talking about? Uh, maybe, maybe. I, I, I never did identify him, you know, to be fair. Um, so, uh, I don't know. Interesting. I'll send you what I found because when you look your name up, there's you and then there's this other, you know, obviously very well-decorated British military hero as well. So I'll send that to you because there may be this cross-pollination because I want to say he was involved in Rhodesia as well, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I-, I am old, but not that old. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously now you're on, you know, the, the back end of your career, older than, than your father was when you lost him. When you yeah. look back now... The, the, let me let me back up one step. One of the myths that I bought into for a long time till I started interviewing so many people was that, and this is not a myth, you know, the, the Vietnam generation, I want to even ask you about the Falklands, but certainly the Vietnam, you know, they came back to being spat on and called baby killers, but the World War II generation seemed to be revered. But then when you kind of unpack that a little bit, yes, there were certain groups that did come to back to ticker tape parades but there are a lot of men and women that just came home that was it and they weren't didn't have this great kind of um decompressing journey to offload what they what they'd seen and what they did what you you were up to 13 did you get any glimpse of the impact of your father's service for this country whether it was physically or Uh, mentally mostly through 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 my mother because he was uh he was pretty compromised um, in, in, in them days, uh, if you, if you had a stroke, they just put you to bed, you know, and, uh, he did have a massive stroke. My wife is, is, uh, my wife, Michelle is, a is a, in her past sort of, uh, NHS working was, she was, a um, a stroke specialist and talking to family members about the, the condition, uh, drugs, um, physio these days, he would have been up on his feet and survived it, you know, potentially. Um, but in them days, you just went to bed. So he spent six years in bed deteriorating, and that was that was most of most of my sort of uh, uh, my life up to up to about thirteen. Um, so I, I knew I knew a very sick man, uh, <clears throat> but through my mother, she talked about him all the time. You know, and 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 passed on everything she knew about his uh, career, where he where he was, what he did, his his um, his character, his personality, and um, and and uh, you know his humour, and that all came came through, uh, and I feel I I knew him, I knew him like I knew. A brother, or or, or 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 a father, and um, but actually, I didn't. You know, I was way too young when he went sort of uh, off grid, so to speak. Yeah, 
it's so important we're losing so many of the world war ii voices now but the the mental and physical cost of that conflict i would argue actually has contributed to a lot of the kind of multi-generational trauma that's put us to some of the issues we struggle with today you know some of the addiction issues and homelessness and you know we, we we had all these men and women come back and they were like all right roll your sleeves up and let's get back to work well there were a lot of men and women that were you know broken physically and mentally that needed that rehabilitation but as you said medicine just wasn't where it is today where you're we able to truly help them transition out no and and also but you know uh neighborly neighborly support was there you know even in those days you know uh they've just gone through a second world war and uh and people helped each other all the time you know helped each other physically, mentally, psychologically, to, to come to terms with it. This was a huge trauma for everybody. Um, we got a taste of that coming back from the Falklands. You know, my, you know, we had a street party for me, you know, brought tears to my eyes after a few beers, you know. And that, again, was a, it's a, release mechanism, it's a relief mechanism, isn't it? And, uh, um, and, and, uh, a little street party, you know, and it was fantastic. And uh, what have I done to deserve this? And all you can think about is, is people that uh, didn't come back, you know. But life goes on, you know. Like the people die, people move on, you know. And all I can think about was 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 uh, my next move, you know, into uh, into special forces. That, that was my new focus. But it's um, that's uh, and we were welcomed appreciated in the media, welcomed, appreciated uh, as home, friends, family. Um, since since, since um, after, after the, the uh, contracting in Iraq, um, started training and I noticed a change in, in, in soldiers. As you know, you know, you know, I've lost count of the amount of uh, people uh, we trained with, with with the old thousand yard stare. Uh, it took me long enough to get over it when I when I got out, you know. Um, uh, 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 but but these people, you know, uh, were still carrying the trauma, you know. And this doing doing the the uh, the, the educational training we were deli delivering in the in the in the, in the PMC world was therapy, you know? And, uh, and the, the, you know, the hardest thing was, was to get them to, to talk about themselves, talk about other things, talk about other people, relax, communicate, smile, stick your hand out, you know? Very hard. Uh, but by the end of the course, a lot, a lot, a lot more communication, because bodyguarding is, is, is all about communication, you know? And, uh, and, you know, we like to think we made quite a difference in in uh, in our own way. Um, and their reception was completely different. You know, uh, the media reception was quite different. The the uh, the local um, reception was quite different. Very 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 polarized. You know, nothing united. Nothing united. And that was the main difference between I I I, I can see with Iraq, uh, and then Afghanistan, um, and uh, 
and us returning from the Falkland Islands, you know, uh, even even in them in those days, Northern Ireland, you know, which was a, a dirty, bloody war, and uh, um, now, you know, it's prosecute soldiers' time, you know, anything they can they, they can uh, pull up against a, a soldier who was in Northern Ireland, you know, fair game for the media, fair game for the apologists, and fair game for the terrorists, you know, and nobody seems to care. This drives people into the, 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 the psychological, the physical uh, reception from people, media, uh, drives people to despair, you know. Uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm sort of um, too old and mean now to worry about it, you know, but... You see it with young people, and I'm just not surprised. They got so many problems these days. Just not surprised at all. And but those are the issues they need addressing, you know. And then the rest will fall. The treatment will fall into place. The rehousing will uh, will fall into place. Getting people people's minds and bodies together will will will, will fall into place, you know. And. Um, uh, that's that's the way I've, I look at it these days. So I want to get back to your early life in a second, but before we do, because this is a very important conversation, I've, I've seen in a lot of my guests that have been on the show recently, especially with the Afghan withdrawal and the way it was handled, you know, from especially American soldiers and all the, uh, you know, the people that we lost, whether it was allies, you know, from Afghanistan themselves, whether it was the people in uniform from the, the, the allied countries, and then there's a sudden withdrawal. And of course, they all know in their heart hearts that they did good. That they've got these stories of, you know, where they made a difference in that one village at that one time. But you were asked to go on this mission with this, you know, flag on your shoulder. And then all of a sudden, the kind of legs are cut from everyone. And there's a lot of people now that, that fought, whether it was in, you know, as he said, Northern Ireland or Falklands or beyond, that look back and go okay were we supposed to be there what was you know what was the mission and why now as you said are some of our people even being betrayed by the organization that they were fighting for and and so, so what is your perception because to me there's there's you know there's a, it's a multifaceted issue but leadership is a big thing and one one observation i made recently is a leader will unify people during crisis and a tyrant will divide people during crisis and we've seen that a lot you know so so what have you seen through your career what were the highs when 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 you know what were the elements of good leadership and what are we seeing now in contrast um well again with the media starting with the with mainstream media yeah i i I, I have no time at all for mainstream media these days. I don't watch BBC. I don't watch ITV. I, 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 um, I watch. I watch. Uh, I watch people like you. I learn from people like you. Um, uh, as far as uh, a lot of people out there are good researchers, they they, um, uh, they reference stuff, you know, so you can check it out, you know, yourself. Um, Mainstream media, it's, it's all political, um, um, uh, kind of polarization to suit the, the agenda of the day, you know, to suit the narrative that they want to push. Very one-sided. Um, so so uh, more and more people are, 
or becoming like that and becoming very angry. Um, when I was a kid, I went from, I left when I was 14 and a half. You know, I left school when I was 14 and a half. Um, because, I don't know, I just didn't get on, get on to school. I did have a, you know, a bit of trauma at home with my, my, my father dying so young. Um, that was, you know, but people die. You know, other, par- other parents die. You know, there, there wasn't there wasn't a reason for me to, to fall apart. You know, but um, I wasn't an academic, and I wanted to work. So I started work. I was restless. I moved from job to job to job, and uh, and and the work was there. The work was there. You know, um, we had electric trolley buses. Have you heard of a trolley bus before? Yes. An electric trolley bus, you know, what they're paying billions now to try and, oh, let's get some electric, oh, what an innovation. Let's get some electric cars going. I mean, you know, the milk was delivered by an electric milk float. I remember 50 that. 50 years ago, you know, and uh, we ripped out the infrastructure for the automobile, you know, uh, Western Europe, you know, we did. Um, Eastern Europe didn't. Place like Poland, Czech, uh, Czech Republic, they still got the fifties uh, um, electric uh, uh, bus and tr- trams still in operation. That's a fantastic service. You can set your watch by it. In this country, no. Um, so you know, England was green then, a lot greener than it is now. Uh, but there was support each and every way you went. You know, my my, uh, my 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 tutors, my 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 um, school tutors were were all, were all soldiers, ex-soldiers from 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 the war. You know, I met I met a at a warehouse when I was about sixteen. I met a, an accountant uh, that had had no hands. He had a couple of hooks, you know, in his suit, um, doing the accounts. He was a Spitfire pilot, you know, and. Uh, I started talking to him, and, and I said, uh, how, did you lose, how did you lose your hands? Because you're really a kid. You ask questions like that, don't you? How did you lose your hands? Then he went, I was a Spitfire pilot. So I, uh, I got shut down and uh, got my hands badly burnt. I had to go off. And, uh, and he said, you know, he, he was just, yeah, matter of fact, really matter of fact about it. He knew Douglas Bader, didn't like him. Uh, and, uh, you know, the famous uh, pilot, Second World War, Hurricane pilot, um, and there was support everywhere, everywhere you went, you know. And I was just a rag ass going nowhere, but work was there and uh, support was there. Um, but now it seems to be uh, uh, you have to fight for liberty these days, you know. It's an uphill struggle to to uh, to speak freely, to think freely, you know, and and uh, and leads to the, to to today's problems, uh, pivotal pivotal sort of sort of um, areas of my life was was obviously you know first of all having my, having my kids hugely pivotal. Um, before that, I met. You know, I did a year at drama school, um, Newcastle Council. I said, uh, you know, I want to go to drama school. 
you know, so when I was 17. And uh, I wanted to be an actor, you know, another sort of uh, rip-out page I just thought of. And uh, said, yeah, uh, how much is it? Wrote me a check, wrote me a check, and, uh, and that was it. Go to local council, you know. Birmingham School of Speech and Drama. I met uh, um, near the end of my, my time there. I met uh, an actor called Dirk Bogard, who was uh, associated. He was a signaller um, in the Paris. Um, I think he was on uh, somewhere like Plymouth Old Bridge battle and uh, inspirational, a sort of in, in, inspirational person. That prompted me to join the Paris. You know, so I left drama school at 18. By the time I was uh, um, 19, I was, I was a servant, a servant paratrooper, you know. Um, in uh, probably two, two years into that, around about 77, um, I, was, I got called into the CO's office. Uh, he said, Graham, you've, you, you've been... I don't know what this is. I don't know what this is about, but you've been drafted. And I said, drafted where? And he said, you've been drafted to the, uh, the Rhodesian Light Infantry. You know? I said, who? <laughs> and he said, Rhodesian Light Infantry. It's a unit that's fighting in, in, uh, in, in, in Rhodesia. And I was just dumbfounded. He said, uh, look, I'm, I'm going I'm to say no. Uh, that's the law because you're you're all, you're already serving in the British Army, you know. But your mother didn't get you naturalised when you came back from um, Rhodesia, you know. Uh, it was some kind, it was kind of, some kind of inheritance sort of clause you had to go through in them days to to get signed up back to back to Britain. You know, you can only inherit your your uh, um, uh, your nationality once, you know, so uh, that hadn't been done. So I, w- I was, uh, I hadn't inherited the the uh, the British um, nationality, so I had to physically get onto my mother, and uh, me and her went down to the council and registered, you know, and brought brought me into line properly. So I could have been fighting in. Uh, if I had been serving somewhere, I would have been drafted to the uh, Rhodesian Army, you know, uh, which was a, a fierce of airborne fighting units at the time, you know. We've had some real, real fun there. <laughs> well, just while we're on that subject, you spent 13 years in Rhodesia, then you moved to Newcastle. I would imagine there was quite a contrast there between those two places on planet Earth. What? Oh, look. Young, younger than that, I was younger than that. I was, but I was, I was only I was an infant when we came back. Oh, so, okay, I misunderstood. Yeah, yeah. But when I was thirteen, my father died. Okay. <laughs> and uh, but we were, you know, my, my mother made a fair amount of money uh, from the business. Uh, she wasn't a business lady, you know, normal human being. And um, the shop, the shops that that she bought didn't go well. The, the uh, apartment she bought didn't go very well and uh, and ended up in a council house, which everybody else was in. No big deal there. Um, but a council house in them days didn't have, you know, didn't have a lot in there. 
outside toilets, etc. So, so um, those were the routes. But I did look around me, and I thought, I've got to get out of here. You know, that was the main, the main thing. There's nothing there for me. Um, I, I love Newcastle, and I love Geordie people, uh, but there was just nothing there for me. You know, I had to. I, thought, I felt in my heart to progress. I've got to. I've got to get away. You know, I think. I think. I think that's a. That's a lot of soldiers. Uh, that's a lot of soldiers' story. Is 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 getting away from uh, where you are, what you're doing, and finding something else. And once you found it, you find it. You know. You know. This is that, that's for you. And that's how I felt when, when joining the uh, parachute regiment. You know. Now, did you find yourself deployed anywhere before the Falklands? Uh, Northern Ireland. Okay, so so you're a young lad from Newcastle. Now you're in this this crazy conflict, which I've talked about this a lot. If if when people ask me, you know, where are you from? I'm like, I'm from. The, you know, the, there's so many definitions for where we're from. You've got you know England or the Britain or the UK, but to me, those two pebbles in the middle of the Atlantic. That's where I'm from. They're all my people. So it was yeah. it was crazy growing up as a young Englishman, seeing neighbors murdering each other over yeah. you know partly from from you know, the UK side, partly from the religious side. So what was that like for you? You know, a young young para being sent to basically our homeland and being immersed in in that, that horrendous violence that you were seeing. Strange, strange sort of um, experience because they're. They are, they, are the, they are the same people, you know. Uh, it could be the north of England. It could be the south of England. You know, they're exactly the same culture and exactly the same uh, language and, and look. And, and uh, um, you know, sometimes the same religion, you know, Catholic or Protestant, depending on, on what you were at the time. Uh, with, with no... Political affinity, um, only the red beret, and uh, and your uh, 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 the soldiers that are there with you. You know that's the, it's your duty to protect each other um, in that situation. And up to that point, it was it was it was quite hairy. You know, it was quite hairy all the way through the early uh, early days. Um, you know, between between seventies, uh, seventies and eighties, it was it was it was uh, quite hairy. Um, I spent did about four 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 tours over there, four six month tours, um, and then uh, um, in and out of the country. You know, so it's six months in 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 that role, uh, and, and as it's basically aid to the civil power. That's what it comes under, as far as the MOD is concerned. Aid to the civil power. So you, you can mobilize troops anywhere in the country as long as it's aid to the civil power. You know, you, the the the, MOD, the, uh, uh, the civil power have jurisdiction over you. You know, to to uh, carry out in for their benefit. And but the British went out there. Um, late sixties, uh, it was the it was the, we were there to defend Catholics, you know, uh, from from Protestant terrorism, um, or you know the 
there was there was a lot of sectarian killings going on. Uh, majority was was uh, against Catholic people, uh, Catholic side of the community, and we went out there specifically to protect the Catholics, you know, and and, and which turned turned into uh, a Republican. Uh, um, type of type of operation, you know. It's um, so there was the confusion straight away. We, you know, we weren't politically motivated. They were just people, as far as we we could see, as far as we knew, and uh, we were defending somebody against somebody else. But those somebody else were, were the same people as us, anyway, you know. Was it terrorism? Was it crime? Was it was it sectarianism? So total confusion um, as far as identifying the reason you you are there, you know. So you had to you you, you had to uh, justify it by if you get shot at, you shoot back. Simple as that. We we did the thought process didn't go any further than that, you know. Um. um the the. Uh, and in the 70s, of course, the, the, the Pyro were kind of reborn from the from the Irish Republican Army. Um, and and they be, become they, they started becoming a, uh, a a formidable terrorist force, you know, all over the province, all over the UK and abroad, you know, wherever British interests were, you find IRA, and as they developed, they they worked with Libyans, they worked with terrorist uh, Islamic terrorist organizations abroad, and um, and all to the to, to the cause of a united island and and uh, and, and and fighting against uh, British soldiers, you know, and they were no slouches. They were very good. They were very good at the job. Um, uh, that's about it. It's, it's a, it went on for another two, two year, uh, um, another ten years. Uh, I think it ended when um, 90, 90 something officially. Uh, well, whenever the the, the official um, ending of the the troubles was declared by the Good Good Friday Agreement, you know. So what was interesting to me, um, I when I was young, I grew up on a farm. It was right next to an MOD base. So we would literally have to check under our cars, you know, in this little farm in, in the west of England because there could be, you know, something placed there that would try and maybe uh, permeate the, the fence there. So I remember sweeping under the car for bombs when I was a schoolboy, you know. Now, was there a high chance? Who knows? I mean, none of us knew at that point. They were blowing up, you know, shopping centers and killing women and children in certain isolated yeah. events. But what was interesting is around that time, I remember Mickey Rourke did a film about the IRA and then supposedly donated all his proceeds from that film to the IRA. That was, again, how do I know? But that was what was reported. But there was this kind of admiration for these irish freedom fighters in the u.s and then mm. we start getting more terrorist attacks here's the first world trade center attack and obviously 9-11 was the big one and i can't help but think part of the demise of that terrorism in in the uk 
was lack of funding and support from a lot of groups in the US. What's your perception of that philosophy? Well, that's true. It's 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 um it's a case of uh that was the that was the big that was about the only thing Tony Blair got right, you know. Um he said, uh, you know, particularly Boston, uh, quite a few stuff. You know, even going back to uh, 19, 1940s, 50s, uh, American movie stars with, with a um, perception of Irishness from their great, 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 great grandfather, you know, was send, sending, sending millions over there, you know, to, uh, uh, towards, you know, for the, for the aim. For, for the cause. Um, Joe Kennedy, you know, Joe Kennedy made made himself rich from buying Irish whiskey and selling Thompson machine guns way, way before our time, you know, and, uh, and becoming a very rich man uh, uh, through it. And, and of course, again, Irish descent of Irish descent. And that same kind of Republican sympathy. Um, the big, the big funding came from Boston, mostly Boston, but all of the states. St. Patrick's Day was a big crowd, crowdfunding event, and um, and it was costing people lives. And then uh, the war on terror came, and uh, it was an old. Uh, the Blair was asked to join the war on terror, and he said, "Yeah, we'll we'll we'll, we'll join your cause, but you know, one thing has to change, and uh, and that's the funding of the IRA. You know, and rumor has it that uh, the funding stopped or was outlawed in the United States, so that the British would fight in the war on terror. You know." And that makes a lot of sense because it's it's outlawed to this day. Yeah. Well, I think that's what happened is that people realize what terrorism actually feels like. And there's nothing patriotic or, you know, Hollywood-esque about it. It's it's horrendous, you know. So when it happened on our doorstep here in the U.S. now, I think people really saw the ugly side of what it is. I mean, the, when mm. you reverse engineer the troubles in England, of course, the, I mean, in Ireland, excuse me, of course, the, the English did some horrific things in our history, some of our forefathers and some of the things that we did to the Irish. But that's, you know, again, not modern day. It's another century. It's nothing to do with me and you. Exactly. You know, me and you would never even dream about being, you know, being that sort of uh, ignorant or destructive, you know. Uh, but but the but the hate is inherited. It still goes on today. You know, it's it's it's, it's not a great place to be now. Uh, you know, Belfast is a fantastic place, but me and you, me and you couldn't walk down the down the Falls Road. You know, in an Irish, we couldn't walk in in a in a, in a Republican bar. You know, we take our lives in our hands. We at least get a big good kick in. Yeah. You know. I walked in there, and they knew all, knew all about me. I'd, you know, I'd be killed. You know, I'd be on the on, on the next casualty list. <laughs> well, they would. So the other side of this whole you know issue with war is we tar 
everyone with the same brush. So Afghanistan, we're at war with Afghanistan. The, the, you know, the reality is the Afghani people are being oppressed by extremists in their country. And that is who the allied nations were trying to take care of. What did you see as far as the the average person in Northern Ireland trying to negotiate life with the the uh, troubles that were going on? Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was such. I mean, it was so. The, the communities were so tight and so divided and so polarized, and they hated each other with a passion. You know, absolutely hated each other. With, we couldn't understand the hate. You know, we just could not understand the hate. Not everybody, but enough to make a difference, enough to keep the keep the uh, the cauldron boiling, you know. Um, and 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 it was a really sort of difficult situation for a soldier, especially combat soldiers like like like, like paratroopers. Um, it's not their role; it's a, it's a policing role. But the police have lost control, hence um, aid to the civil power out there, supported by soldiers, you know. And um, and you don't, it's a difference, you know, you're either a soldier or you're a policeman. You, you can't do both. You can't be both, you know. Somebody shoots at you, you shoot back, you know. People get killed. Uh, if, if there is collateral damage, then it's the form of war, as far as I'm concerned. You know, um, today there isn't there is no fog of war. You're right or you're wrong in 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 your opinion today, not seventy years ago or fifty years ago or sixty years ago. You know, um, people are people are putting themselves in situations that happened seventy fifty years ago. You know, and and. Uh, and trying to take down 70-year-old men, you know, for being something that happened, which resulted in a death, maybe by their hand, um, in a contact, um, in, a, in, a, in a kinetic contact, um, and, and uh, you're going to soldier, you're going to shoulder all of the blame. No politicians, no senior officers, no officers on the ground, just you, just you. It's a hell of a responsibility, you know. The media on you, it's your fault, you pull the trigger. As if you were a killer, as if you were a murderer, not a killer, a murderer. You know, and that's what's, that's what's wrong today. You know, um, um, those that, that, you know, the, the Good Friday Agreement achieved uh, two things, you know, it achieved um, the re release of hundreds of convicted terrorists and the incarceration of former British soldiers on nip-nap and trivia that was tried and tested at the time and information that was found to be flawed. And they were, they were released 40 years ago after the inquiries, you know. So they, rein, they reinvent the inquiry to make you guilty. It's a lie. It's fake. It's a lie, you know, brought along by political, uh, uh, um, political um, narrative, 
you know. And uh, that's that's hundred percent believe that. And it wasn't the Good Friday. The, the Good Friday agreements, you know, the IRA came to the table, not the other way around, and they couldn't afford the attrition. You know, they were losing too many people. They just could not afford the attrition. And um, no one, no, no insurgency group can. And uh, better to negotiate than fade away. You know, as far as they're, they're, they're concerned. The political, the, you know, people like Jerry Adams, genius, you know, uh, in, in, in turning uh, the situation into their favor. You know, and, and, and they were convicted terrorists years ago, years before. Uh, and, and, and ended up in Parliament, you know, fantastic horrors. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, the way you construct words, sentences, fantastic. And uh, shifting the blame. It's never the Republican soldier's fault. Never, never the Republican army fault. It's always the British army's fault. They shouldn't have been there in the first place. On their own soil? You know, it's a British state. The vast majority of people wanted to remain that way in Northern Ireland, you know. Um, and only the Irish people can, only the Northern Irish people can, can uh, decide that. If they decide they want a night island, I mean, night island. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure the... Uh, um, Republic of Ireland is interested in 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 in, in uh, inheriting that problem. They're not interested. Well, when you talk about the media, one thing that pops into my head from from my profession, but in the UK, is the Grenfell fire. Like so many firefighters responded to that, lay their lives on the line. I had uh, Ricky Nottle on. He and his uh, his partner made it, you know, all the way to the top. I mean, they were, you know. Uh, rescuing countless people from that tower and the whole reason that that was even an issue was the lack of maintenance the cladding they put on the outside and they to this day are still dragging the fire brigade through the through the the mud and danny cotton who was the chief at the time i mean she's been the, the scapegoat that that department did nothing but selfless rescue and the people actually responsible are still not not being held responsible yeah because they are and that was the councils, the governments, the government are responsible, you know, chief, uh, chief councils, the local chief council was responsible for all those deaths. Nobody, nobody else, you know, and uh, and and you know, there's, there's there's places all over the country like that, and they will turn uh, the media will turn um, the media, the political classes, the left, the, the left wing apologists. But all and sundry will 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 turn the turn turn the um, the problem around and blame somebody else. They will blame the heroes, you know, and uh, for the death of the victims and not the perpetrators, you know, because they are the perpetrators, you know. Absolutely. Labour, serials, cheap councils, gutless governments. You know, 
that's just the way way it is today. Well, speaking of selfless service, you finished your tours in in um, Northern Ireland. Walk me through the beginning of the Falklands conflict. You know what you saw as far as the preparation, and then let's get to you know you finding yourself on Goose Green. Well, yeah, I was. Um, <clears throat> do you remember telegrams? I do. Yes, I'm yeah. that old. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well. Everybody in Tupac got a telegram to say, uh, um, I mean, we're, 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 there, there, there was a, um, we were a spearhead battalion. Um, we were ending, ending our, just, just about ending our tour of, of spearhead battalion, which is, which is uh, if anything happens, we we're, were five airborne brigade at the time. And uh, if anything happens, you know, we are, we're we're all packed and ready to go, subject to contact the people on a on a um, if they're on leave or they're in barracks. That's fine. They're there if they're on leave. Uh, a, a telegram, and uh, the um, uh, I was at home on leave. Uh, shortly to take over from us was the uh, the Angulan regiment as spearhead um battalion and that was that was sort of we were almost in the transition uh i got the call i reported back uh i was late because the tele the telegram was late and uh got called into the the oc's office the company the company commander's office uh i was you know got it a strip torn out of my house, you know, for uh, being late. And uh, and he said, no, you know, go get your guys ready. Um, you're lucky you didn't miss it, you know. And uh, <coughs> so we started getting, getting our equipment together, getting ready. Uh, and and it, it all happened very quickly, within days. Uh, the deployments. The the uh, we got a, the last night in Aldershot. We, we the whole battalion was was was, was on the square uh, with with a threat. You know, I think it was the, the weekend before or something, and uh, we knew it was, it was happening. And uh, we said, if, if we if, if we have one piece of trouble downtown, um, one person is is in jail. You know, you'd be taken off. The roster and you won't be going so the, the we're, we're heading for the falcons and uh last night last night to uh, to have a drink and uh we were warned if anybody got into trouble uh you won't be going and that was the the most quiet uh night Aldershot has ever seen ever seen in its history <laughs> you know? because everybody wanted to go um so we uh, we had a respective marching orders mounted up uh, on the Norland, which was a, a seagoing uh, um, vehicle ferry. You know, it wasn't it was barely you know it wasn't an ocean going liner. It was a it was it was a, it was a cross channel ferry, a ferry cars. You know, and I was ferrying a battalion of equipment and uh, soldiers. Um, it was. 
planning, preparation, packing kit, unpacking kit on the way down there. Uh, the bar was open. The the uh, I think after we after we as I, as I recall left the 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 uh, uh, the equator. The closer we got, the less we drank, you know. Um, but it was still it was still on top uh, on tap, and then, I think a few days before it was closed. Um, and just taking taking it quite easy, really taking it quite quite uh, in our stride, you know. Um, most of us thought it's never going to happen. Yeah, uh, the, the Argentinians will jack before before we get motoring, and it only ever hit us. It only really hit us when uh, when the um, the Exocet struck the first uh, ship, and uh, and that went down. And then we knew it was um, it was really on, you know. And we were going, you know. So it started to focus everybody's uh, attention, you know. Um, we were a patrol element. We were the patrol company, which was uh, um, in MD. We didn't have pathfinders in those days. Um, we got a separate pathfinder unit to do that kind of uh, brigade reconnaissance uh, um, operation. We didn't have that then. We had uh, patrol companies um, within those companies, platoons and uh, patrols. So they were, they, were, they were fit. They were all fit guys. Um, tended to be older guys, you know, drawn from the rifle companies to do a. A decent selection within within the patrol companies, so we're kind of specialists within the battalion on reconnaissance um, and infiltration. Um, this our infiltration method was 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 uh, um, high altitude, low opening parachute into into drop zones, manning drop zones, and and then bringing consequently bringing in battalions, you know, on our so say so. <coughs> um, so. Uh, we were, you know, a battalion asset, so we were available to anybody in the battalion as an asset. <coughs> and we were used by the various different people on the ground at, 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 on the Falcons as, uh, as, as their patrol elements. So we'd, we'd, we'd pick up a job and, and go on that job. Um, we, we landed um, on a place called uh, Blue Beach 2 and uh, 2 Para. So we uh, got off at, in the middle of the night. Um, there'd been all kinds of delays. The, the, uh, in the landing craft, we had a handful of hand landing craft with the battalion in. And we were moving around in a circle, in a holding pattern, um, waiting for the SBS to give a green light on the beach to say it was going to be an unopposed landing. Yeah. Red light means it's, it's, it's an opposed landing. So in other words, the beach is manned and we're going to be getting, we're going to get, we were going anyway. But we just, you know, it was just that green light, red light, and then we knew, you know. Um, the light didn't came. The, the light didn't come. Uh, the Marines didn't make it. So um, at night, <coughs> first thing in the morning, dawn, we uh, we landed. Um, 
on a beach where we didn't know whether the landing was going to be opposed or unopposed, you know, and uh, landed. The, the front of the landing craft went down, out, 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 um, and uh, and we started. We started that's, that's how we started the, the war, very, very wet and cold. Um, during the the orbit of of the of the craft of the craft, um, there was a shot rang out, and uh, somebody had a negligent discharge. Uh, a signals guy with a Sterling submachine gun, you know, and uh, one of the mortar guys uh, in the mortar platoon, one of one of the mortar platoon signalers that had the uh, the negligent discharge, the ND. He uh, he got to Sussex Mountains before he changed his socks and found out he'd been he'd been shot in the shot in the heel. So in the landing craft, this guy with his finger on the trigger with an SMG, a highly unstable uh, submachine gun, isn't used today, that went off and, uh, and put it around into his heel. He didn't even notice. Such was the ad- adrenaline. And uh, all the way up to Sussex Mountains where we, we had an opportunity to rest and uh, change his socks because if, oh, oh, they really, one of them was really, really, really wet. Changed it and he'd been shot in the foot. Didn't even notice. So that was that was quite memorable. My uh, one of my guys uh, uh, fell into some pretty deep water. Uh, you know, the, you can imagine the, the, the sort of the shelf was sort of could be like that. If you if you're lucky, you step right under the beach. If you're unlucky, you went up to your up to your, up to your neck. This guy did with his LMG with dozens of magazines and the rest of the equipment. Um, everything was man-packed, the mortar rounds, uh, two mortar rounds a piece, etc. And I uh, just laid them down with probably 150 pounds with a gear on your back, you know? And um, <coughs> so he went under, uh, you know, me and somebody else went under, picked them up, dragged them onto the beach, and uh, our priority was, you know, we had to get ahead of the battalion. Uh, that was our role. So we couldn't go anywhere until we got his feet sorted and uh, at least a dry a dry top on. So we achieved that in double quick time and then started galloping uh, in front, to the front of this battalion snake, as we knew. And uh, still at night, still unopposed. And... Uh, Ice, the cold, the wind, um, the mist. Uh, walked past this 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 group of officers, just talking quietly as we were advancing. Um, I walked past. And I slipped on my ass, you know. And it was Ace Jones, and he says, "Who the fuck's that?" And I says, "Corporal Gillespie." And he says, "Where the fuck are you from?" And he said, uh, patrols. And he said, well, patrols are at the front. Fucking get going. <laughs> so, uh, got up. The rest of the patrol got me up because these, these, these Bergens were just, you know, the weight was unbearable, but you had to. And uh, picked the tubs up and, and, and cracked on the front where the rest of the patrol 
company was, you know, and and our responsibility was uh, getting the patrols out um, into different different uh, areas of the of, of, of the uh, the battlefield to pick up information, um, feedback any information that was that that the um, the, the TAC one HQ needed, you know. So everything we come across, we fed back information. That, that was our job, eyes and ears of the battalion. Um, <clears throat> onto uh, Sussex Mountain, we got people had a chance to uh, breathe, to dig in, um, and uh, by the time it was light, um, everybody still cold, still wet. However, we've been able to change our socks. Um, get a water reset, get some food on, and we started digging as soon as we stopped. Uh, the holes filled up with water because of the uh, um, the water table in 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 the in the peat bogs. They aren't, uh, you know, there's very little solid uh, rock where we were. You could you couldn't you couldn't dig through the solid rock, so you, you dug where it was soft, and the soft was peat, you know. So uh, we had to dig anyway, and and and, and sleep and work outside of the the the, the uh, gun trenches that we that we dug, you know. So if an airstrike came in, we were straight in the holes. At least we had a bit of cover, uh, but there was a lot of water, a bit of cover and a lot of water. Um, some people built. Uh, Different, uh, you know, sandbag emplacements or pit emplacements just for a little bit of a um, bit of protection. No trees, pretty featureless um, terrain. And uh, we sort of turned around, looked down the valley, and uh, the warships. And started to to uh, um, do whatever they were doing. There was another battalion behind behind us of of, uh, um, of guards way down in the uh, in Sussex Valley. Uh, then the airstrikes started. Yep. So airstrikes from the Argentinian Air Force uh, started their bombing runs. Up and down what, what we what we nicknamed Bomb Alley, you know. So they'd fly over our heads and uh, heading straight for the ships. So by that time, everybody was you know two battalions on their backs firing aimlessly into the air, you know. Um, it's it's yeah, faster than being jet. The chances of hitting something is is uh, is pretty minimal on your own. If you get a wall of lead from two battalions, then they have to fly through it, you know, and that's that was the theory behind it. Um, the superintendents were pretty untouchable, you know. By the time they, you heard them, they they were gone, you know. They're so fast. Um, the sort of kills we had uh, attributed to 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 the battalions were two or three Skyhawk. Which were slower aircraft, through a ground attack uh, vehicle rather than a and a fighter. Um, uh, the SS, the, the, sorry, the uh, 
the superintendents were there with they had the uh, exocet missiles and uh, they were they 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 were only interested in ships. <coughs> um, throughout the day, they got uh, you know several hits on several ships and started to get pretty depressing. You know, watching all these warships getting hit and none of the aircraft, apart from the aircraft hit with with uh, small arms fire. And we said, well, you know, where are the Harriers? Um, they couldn't get off the boats because of bad weather. You know, they couldn't take off because of bad weather out at sea. Um, having said that, I believe, you know, the 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 the, the, uh, the Argentinian pilots were hit, ambushed on their way out back to Buenos Aires. You know, by by uh, Harriers, and uh, once they were able to get airborne, so they had a. The um, the Argentinian Air Force had a high, very brave pilots, but they had a high attrition rate, and uh, you know, really resulting in a lot of victories for the for the, uh, the Harrier pilots. <coughs> um, patrol platoon, like I said, with patrol platoon, we were we were tasked to go forward, um, doing various tax uh, tasks, um, including. Eyes and ears of the battalion, uh, doing reconnaissance on uh, particular particular um, areas that that the that the attack one required, feeding back information. Um, you had special forces, an extra bound uh, inland, uh, doing 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 their thing, which was which was uh, more along the lines of things like you heard of uh, Pebble Island. Uh, it rings um, a bell, yeah. Take, taking on airfields and strategic, sort of higher strategic stuff. Um, and we were feeding back information that was going to be useful for a battalion move, you know, to move forward and get rifle companies in a, into a safe area that they could set up ready to fight a battle. You know, so that was our main, that was our main role, which we achieved. Um, while we were out, uh, one night, the uh, in and out, maybe ten miles, uh, ten k's out, ten k's back, ten k's out, ten k's back. We retasked all the time. You know, battalion rested, but we we didn't get a chance to rest. Um, we were straight out in light order, uh, bobble hats as opposed to helmets, no burgers, no sleeping bags, just soft, soft. Uh, well, we we, we called them Chinese fighting suits, but it was, it was basically a, a duvet. Uh, Cheap and nasty duvet jacket and leggings, you know, that zipped up, which were at the time they were gold dust. You know, you could roll them up small and put them in a um, on your gear somewhere, uh, ready to take out and put that on at night, and then take it off in the morning, and then you know put it back uh, and try and keep it as dry as possible. Every every everywhere else was full of ammunition, you know. <clears throat> so, um, this one time we were, we were sent back out in light order again, uh, and we were retasked. Um, we went out on an ambush that, that didn't happen. We got retasked to uh, head for Kimberley Creek House, and uh, that was the battalion RV. Um, 
Ice Jones had decided that that uh, well, the authorities had decided that um, that Goose Green was 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 going to be the first land battle, you know, um, and you know, we just we we just we we just expected a battle, you know. We were picking up information from um, from TAC HQ. We fed information. We fed information back. And we 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 we, we uh, ascertained, you know, that that uh, special forces had had um, had said that, you know, uh, Goose Green wasn't um, was badly defended. It was it was, it was there wasn't a lot of people there. It was badly manned, and a quick raid from a, a para battalion would uh, or a quick a quick attack from a para battalion. Uh, and they fall straight away, you know, and uh, that wasn't the case. Their OPs didn't get close enough, you know. By the time our OPs, our, our, our patrol uh, guys got close enough, um, we discovered hundreds, you know, dozens of different positions um, that, that, that the SF had missed, you know, and uh, but they you know, to be fair to the to the SF at the time, they were on they were on strategic. Uh, uh, they, you know, their their job was strategic target um, acquisition at the time, which they did very effectively. They can only do what they're asked to do. In other words, um, <coughs> so patrol patrol company patrol uh, elements of the patrol platoon um, got the the nitty gritty information that was going to help. Fighting soldiers on the ground. It was going to help the the um, uh, the section commanders, the, the the toms on the ground that were going to actually fix bayonets and do the killing. You know, that was that was important to me. I wasn't interested in in, in what was above colonel. You know, I wasn't interested in politics. I wasn't interested in anything except getting the job done to to uh, um, protect as many fighting soldiers as possible. You know, to enable them to do their job and take the least amount of casualties. So um, we did that, um, and uh, and the battle started. You know, um, in the early hours, uh, one morning, and uh, um, we, after having done our Patrol task, yeah. The wiper companies took over to do the, to do the vast majority of the fighting, and uh, and we move a tactical bound back and wait to get retasked again, which we did on other positions, you know, and doing the more or less the same thing. Um, the. The, the battle continued throughout the day. <coughs> um, H. Jones had a, a commander. He had a timeline in his mind to to uh, uh, to get right. You know, he wanted he wanted everything done by a certain time, and uh, we were falling back in time all, all of the time because because people were fighting and they were getting bogged down in certain positions. Um, uh, the support we, we weren't getting any support, 
we weren't getting um, uh, ammunition resup uh, resupply. So there's only a limited amount of of uh, uh, things you can do. You know, while still fighting forward, um, it would have been easier, quicker if we'd have had the assets that um, that didn't arrive. You know, and uh, as it was, we, the pace was slowed, and that you know, for for H. Jones, that was that was uh, that was terrible, and uh, he kept pushing the guys, pushing the guys, and and he's he's, he's the commander. That's that's what they did, and. Uh, People kept on fighting. Uh, a company came across um, a position at uh, Darwin Hill, which is which is which is you know it's it's called it's called the Gorse Gully. You know we recognised it as the Gorse Gully. Um, the battalion advanced up that gully, and with a company leading. Um, they hadn't had the benefit of the patrols because because of the rush, uh, patrol company of patrol platoon wasn't tasked to do some reconnaissance forward. Um, consequently, they didn't know the strength. They didn't know anybody was there in that in that valley, um, um, and they were virtually ambushed, you know, from uh, in depth positions um, interlocking. Overlapping arcs of arcs of fire from dozens of machine guns, uh, mortar fire, and eventually artillery and airstrike. <coughs> uh, and and that, that was that, that that was during the day. So we were we were in reserve at the time, and we could see this happening. You know, and we're wondering why uh, they'd walked into into that that uh, a situation. But you know, hindsight is everything, and uh, that's basically why um, uh, they went in there blind, basically. Uh, so it was a hell of a hell of a thing to fight their way out of that. Um, the uh, the battalion eventually fought their way out of that. They were, you know, the B Company were fighting on on uh, uh, on one front, D Company. Fighting on another, on another front, start lines established by other patrols. Um, a company had, had, had got some real difficulty and uh, were fighting their way out of that. H. Jones and his TAC 1 wanted to go forward to find out what was happening. Um, H. Jones is always push, push, push. And um, uh, quite a few officers from his, from, from his TAC 1 got, got killed. Um, with minutes of arriving there, and um, until the attack one was just ineffective, um, attack two had to take over, which is a tactical two element, uh, a duplicate of attack one, and uh, the uh, H. Jones uh, took it upon himself to come down the slope, up another ridge on the on the right, and um, and it's had to take out a. Uh, machine gun emplacement on his own, you know. Um, there was other things happening at the same time. Uh, seconds after H. Jones was killed, um, A Company had managed to get some of their small elements onto a flank section, 
uh, or two on, on the flank, putting down heavy, heavy uh, fire on, on the flank of, of uh, Ekebi's position. And they were able to pick up the momentum again and fight their way out. You know, so uh, uh, lots of lots of casualties, lots of deaths, and um, and just kept the, kept the momentum going. The next, we had a bit of a rest on after after the goose after uh, the ghost gully. Um, we, uh, as a patrol platoon, we went forward and uh, we were clearing. Making sure that all of the the gun emplacements were neutralised, so like a mopping up operation, if you like, and um, um, rest of the rest of the company taking taking care of their wounded and dead. Uh, <coughs> it was a prolonged rest, and then the momentum started to pick up. Orders came through, um, a new seal was in place, Major Keeble, and. Um, uh, started the ball rolling. Um, B Company were complete. D Company were ready to go. And then they started moving around to the right flank of Goose Green. And um, uh, Patrol Company advanced advanced to contact. Yeah, you know what advanced to contact means. You just advance until you get shot at. Um, and then and then go into your into your attack. So that was that was the the uh, the first time. Um, C Company had come under, um, you know, been under fire um, before that, but it was this was the first time we were pushed into a in the, into into an overt role, you know, big covert roles up to then. It was an overt role now, and we were just fighting our way forward <coughs> into a into a, um, a position. You bent under some horrendous fire, and again, lots and lots of casualties taken on the way down there from all, all uh, elements. And um, it was, it was just horrendous fire from in depth positions at Goose Green, um, artillery, mortar, machine gun fire. Um, at some point, uh, Pukara air ground uh, attacks were going in on the troops and got to a position where we went firm. Um, one of the one of the corporals had taken over as platoon sergeant. They shouted, "Fixed bayonets! We all fixed bayonets!" And uh, I just said, "You know, follow me to the right." We peeled off right into into another into another valley, <coughs> and uh, close to um, a position called the schoolhouse. Which was one of the one of the Argentinians' strongholds. Um, D Company were fighting forward on the on the right side. B Company were on the on the uh, on the airfield, and uh, you know companies were intermingled by then. And you know from 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 anybody's perspective, it just looked like uh, a rabble. You know. Just advancing onto a position, yeah. Um, thousands of rounds across people's shoulders, machine gun, uh, uh, GPMG machine guns. And it was just an advance, you know. Um, fighting forward, uh, we got to close to the, the position of the schoolhouse. Uh, D Company put in some uh, massive fire support. Uh, we'd arranged 
and arranged with with uh, Tom Harley, who was uh, a linkman with 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 his section, platoon, etc., and elements of uh, D Company. And I said, you know, he took our heavier weapons, our machine guns, our grenade launchers. We went forward with rifles, and he was going to put in some uh, fierce fire supports, and we'd go up a very tight, small re-entrance and assault the schoolhouse for a flank, and that's what we did. Um, once the schoolhouse was taken out, um, we, we uh, came under, you know, that was, that was the furthest forward uh, position of the whole battle area by then. And uh, once that position was taken over, the, the schoolhouse caught fire. We grenaded it with the big fuss thrown. Um, and uh, the building was on fire by now. And it started taking some horrendous fire from the in-depth positions on that, on that, on that position because they knew that was the forward edge of the battle area. So they concentrated the fire on, on, on that. Um, we got pinned down then and uh, couldn't move forward, back, left, right. Uh, we just occupied gun trenches that were uh, taken by, uh, which were Argentinian positions, you know. So throwing out, throwing out dead bodies and occupying them with live bodies, basically. Um, and uh, keeping our head down. Got a few photographs now of each other. And uh, no, nothing to do but get a brew on, you know. Got a brew on, that's it. And uh, darkness came. We uh, stripped our kit off, threw it behind us. There was a slight incline down to get away from the that 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 uh, that position. Um, it went quiet and it went dark, so we took that opportunity to move back, picking up casualties as we went. You know, um, we were told, you know, that that was our orders. Move back to A Company's position. We moved back with casualties. Um, D company casualties we were picking up and taking them, taking them back along casualties. And uh, um, uh, on that on that feature on the A company position, there was a there was a plan drawn up by um, CEO Keeble at the time to to uh, organise you know to to, to attempt. Uh, surrender by the Argentinians, you know. Uh, at this time, we had no, no artillery, uh, no mortars, ammunition was very low. Um, and uh, no water, no food, no supplies, nothing coming, you know. And Akiba um, wrote this, wrote this, Letter. But first, of, first of all, me and another uh, patrol commander from patrols were going to take that in with a prisoner, you know, to um, uh, down the Argentinian stronghold under a white flag. You know, me and this other guy constructed a white flag from somewhere. You know, and uh, and then it turned out they they, they had a they, they found a marine officer, or sorry. Uh, one of the officers spoke Spanish, so uh, they, they, he went down with the prisoner. And uh, 
<clears throat> with a letter that said, you know, words to this effect, um, you know, we're, we're, we're resupplied, we're, we're reinforced um, by Marine Battalion, uh, which we weren't. We have uh, um, uh, mortar ammunition, plenty of been resupplied mortar ammunition, artillery rounds, it's supplied with small arms. Um, we have airstrikes on crawl, and um, if you don't surrender, Gooseberry uh, will be bombarded at first light, and you will be responsible for all the civilians that, that you're holding against their will. And, um, you know, but down there, the, the, the sort of, the sort of, the sham worked, and they surrendered, you know. And that's a fact, we couldn't have, you know, we, we would have fought on to the death. There's no, no, absolutely no doubt about that. There would have been no surrender on our part. But um, this is the kind of thing that's happened in, happened in, uh, in the Second World War. You know, we, we, we fought ourselves to a standstill. And that's when, that's when you, when, when a decent, you know, when, when you get uh, people counterattacking, you know, and taking you out um, because they've managed to lure you into a position where you've fought yourself to a standstill. That's the position we were on. We were completely spent, spent force. And uh, yes, we would have died on the spot if, we were, if, if the counterattack did happen. There would have been no surrender on our part. Um, the, the commander of Goose Green uh, took the letter and, uh, and surrendered. So the composite team went down, about 50 people, some patrols, A company volunteers, uh, B company volunteers, about 50 in all, went down to accept the, the surrender. The only codice was the Argentinians wanted a formal surrender in, uh, in, a, in a quadrangle, um, formally hand over officers' swords, um, throw the weapons, they, they were asked to throw the weapons into, uh, into, into the center of the quadrangle. Um, the, the, the officers were allowed to keep their sidearms, you know, I think to protect themselves against the, uh, the troops, is the word, and uh, 50 of us took, took the surrender in support of the, the, the officers that were taking the surrender. Um, Argentinians started to come out, um, throwing their weapons into the center of the quadrangle. Quadrangle got bigger and bigger and bigger from a dozen to 20 to 50 to 100 and 200 and 300, all the way up to almost 1,200 troops, Argentinian troops, you know. And uh, Imagine what we felt like, you know, you know, fuck, you know, there's 50 of us, virtually able-bodied, you know, we've got a spent battalion behind us and, uh, and taking the surrender from 1,400 people, you know, and, uh, and that was, that was the end. So. so I think that, you know, we did a good job, Tupac did a good job, did a great job. All ranks did a fantastic job, and uh, you know, for me, having having been done what I did, uh, it's it's the biggest it's the biggest um, 
hostage rescue operation. The whole of the Falklands campaign was the biggest hostage rescue uh, campaign in the world, you know, today freeing 3,000 people, you know, 3,000 British passport holders. That's the difference between that kind of campaign and something like Iraq and Afghan, you know. Well, firstly, that was an insight that I hadn't heard before, especially on the surrender side. I mean, I read the book and um, you know, there's that one element where initially a small surrender was to be taken and then allegedly the Argentinians had actually opened fire on, on the men that were receiving the, the uh, surrender. So, oh, yeah. yeah. But um, one thing that really kind of struck me, and we're going back now to your year in drama school. I, I spent a year in drama school and when it came to the showcase time where you do a monologue for agents, um, a lot of my peers were pure actors and they chose Shakespeare and some other plays. And I found one called Welcome Home by Tony Marchant. And it was a Falklands veteran or a group of veterans, basically at a funeral of one of their, their fallen brothers. And this one character talks about when the doors of the schoolhouse were open, all the bodies like the charred wood on a burnt out bonfire. So here we are now having this conversation. I'm talking to the man who actually walked into that schoolhouse and you wrote about it in the book. So, I mean, there must have been some absolute horrors, you know, some some horrific losses um, from, you know, you yourself had some experience in Northern Ireland. I'm sure a lot of the guys that you were serving with maybe hadn't seen any combat by that point. Talk to me about the ripple effect. You you yourself had a street party. You felt like you were received well. You know, what what was the longevity of that gratitude when you returned home? And from between then and now, have you seen some of your fellow soldiers struggle with what happened in the Falklands Islands? Um, uh, yes and no. Yes and no. It's, it's uh, again, again, it's, 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 it's people, you know, you know, I, I never lost my focus. You know, I still, I still have focus now. Um, most of my friends from, you know, from that era uh, were patrol company. Um, our patrol platoon, for instance, stuck together in a WhatsApp group for the last 40 years, you know, and uh, half of that number were in, were in, were in 22SAS with me, with me, you know. So, uh, we motivate each other and people have died from the group people have fallen on hard times and as a, as a, as a group we've, we've looked after people and taken care of, 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 uh, of ourselves you know um, nobody's perfect and, and no, uh, nobody has a perfect life and, and, and sometimes uh, people just don't make it um, but sometimes they wouldn't have made it in, in any other scenario either. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to pin down onto, on, onto uh, something like uh, Goose Green. Have they, uh, you know, people have, people have struggles. Um, uh, people have committed suicide over the years from, 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 that, from the battalion, you know, several people. Um, and a fair amount have, have uh, fallen on hard times. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the parachute regiment have a good regiment laid, sort of uh, 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 assistance department, 
that look after people when they when they seek help. If somebody doesn't seek help, you can't find it. You know, it, it won't be there. Um, you have to seek help. That's that's the first bit of advice that I'd give anybody. That's this this finding uh, life unbearable uh, because of what, what what they did or seen. You know, uh, remain focused. Uh, look look for help. You know, the help is there um, if you want it. Um, we look after people that didn't want the help. So we like forced help onto them, you know? And uh, that's the difficulty. People, even, even when, they're, when, they're, uh, when they drop their fill, you know, um, they won't be helped. And for those people, you can't do anything else. You, you can't do anything for them except humor. Uh, try and humor them out of it. It will help them in a, in a, in a humorous way, but it's, um, it's a case of, you know, people have to ask for help before they get it. Um, and stay focused, stay ambitious, um, and, 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 uh, and stay close to your family. You know, that's the main thing. As far as the media is concerned, um, the difference, you know, you're on about differences of, of how they feel, you know, how, how, how they feel against, uh, towards the Falkland War. I think it's you know, everything, everything the, the media uh, um, say about any conflict that's, that's to do with the British Army these days is bad. You know, I, I, I think the Falkland Islands was, 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 you know, apart from the Second World War, the, the Falkland Islands was the was, was the uh, the most noble war we've ever fought. You know, um, Iraq, Afghan, you know, complete waste of time. Um, the only thing the British Army got out of it was 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 experience. You know. Um, too many shattered lives, too many shattered bodies, too many shattered minds. Um, policing, you know, the, the, the kind of injuries we sustained in, in, in the Falcon Islands were, 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 were gun, vast majority of gunshot wounds, you know. Um, you're, fighting, you're fighting insurgency as in uh, Iraq and Afghan. After the main battle, the main battles are easy, you know, it's the, it's the, uh, it's, it's the insurgency, it's the patrolling, it's the, it's, 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 it's the, uh, the policing, you know, um, and the, the IEDs, um, the, the hate that people have to deal with. It reminded me of Northern Ireland, you know, and some of the injuries you get, you, you had in, for instance, in uh, Afghan uh, and Iraq, post-war, post battle, um, initial battle, you know, people haven't seen those kind of injuries since the, first, since the First World War, you know, so it's a, it's a hell of a loss to, uh, um, for, for, for a human being to absorb, you know, so they have all the, you know, have all my sympathy, but again, the same rules, 
stick to your, stick to your family, stay focused, and do do something good every day. You know, reflect on yourself and make yourself the hero. You know, because they are they are they are the hero. You know, and uh, and um, the deniers, the the uh, the apologists, uh, the left wing brigade. You know, can go and do one, and that's that's the attitude you have to have. You must believe in yourself before you believe in any, any anybody else, and that's what that's what people lose. They lose belief in themselves, lose belief in themselves. They lose belief in others. They lose belief in the system, you know. And uh, once that it, damage has been done to somebody's mind, it's a hell of a roll back, you know. And I hope in our in 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 our training cycles, um, we've achieved um, uh, a lot. In, in, in passing on what we know, pass, passing on our experiences, passing on our training techniques and, and uh, our coping mechanisms, hopefully we've made a little bit of difference, you know, to people's lives. Yeah, what's well, a valuable perspective, I think, you know, especially with, with the conflicts that you've been involved with and obviously the roles that you've held in the military and what you're doing now as well. You've got a very unique lens. One more top, one more question about the Falcons before we progress through through my very naive and completely detached from the military perspective, I asked the question, could that have been resolved through diplomacy? Whether, you know, prior to when we finally got to the point where Argentinian feet hit Falkland soil, um, when you analyze that entire kind of conflict now, was there any point where we could have avoided war or was that one that, that had to happen? Uh, it was unavoidable. Um, we have we have two completely different political structures, uh, structures, um, and uh, on one hand we have a, a murderous junta at the time, not anymore, at the time the murderous junta, um, and and uh, on the other side you've got a stable democracy, you know. And um, there was no way, there was no going back for the Argentinian military. It was the military that was in charge. There was no going back. They wanted those islands as a political move. They wanted those islands to, to uh, as a distraction because of the, the corrupt economy that was, that, that, was, that was prevalent at the time. And uh, uh, I don't believe there's the, 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 there would have been any way out of that um, as far as a political settlement is concerned. Uh, the only way that would have been achieved is if there was another prime minister in charge, um, a left-wing Labour government perhaps would have said no, or, or, or a weak conservative government um, that would say, okay, we'll do a deal. Yeah? And, uh, and that deal would have, would have been uncompromising as far as the Argentinians were, were, were concerned. Once they'd won uh, the political battle, um, you've given away 3,000 British lives. 
you've left 3,000 British lives to their fate. You know? It's like giving up Dover to Adolf Hitler, isn't it? And, and who knows? You know, everybody there would be, they'd be speaking Spanish now, wouldn't they? And uh, would, it be, would it be such a terrible thing? I don't know. But uh, at the time, something had to be done. And uh, Margaret Thatcher was, 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 was just the lady to do it. See, this is what I love about what I do now. You know, I grew up as a, I mean, I was eight when the Falklands War happened, you know, so I was completely naive at the time. But reading your book and reading where Argentina was at that point in the early 80s with, with the uh, the killings of anyone who opposed that government, you realize, oh, well, my philosophy on, you know, what could have possibly been done to prevent it was imagining two governments having the same kind of mindset but when you put in that one is a vicious dictatorship now it changes the whole kind of equation of would it have played out this way so i love these conversations because i'm learning and realizing okay i used to think that this was possibly avoidable but now real you know listening to these stories and reading the history of of the events leading up to it at that point, a tyrant was not only oppressing the Falkland Islanders, but he was oppressing his own people and murdering them and throwing them out in, you know, in the ocean, as you write about. So this is what I love about these conversations. Is you can't summarize this in a tweet or a five-minute news segment. Yeah, that's true, yeah. And it was only ever, go, it was only ever going to go one way, you know, and, uh, and that was war. But having said that, you know, if if uh, if the the, the, the losses to the shipping had continued, maybe if we lost a, a troop ship, you know, I mean, uh, um, things would have been a lot different. You know, hit one troop ship, you've lost you've lost a battalion of men. You know, you aren't going to get them men back. You know, and that's. Yeah, you know, six hundred people. You know, potentially, and uh, that would have been a, a huge loss. Uh, all of a sudden, yeah. Well, you know, you dropped the Belgrado. Um, we've we've dropped the Norland. Uh, let's negotiate from the from the uh, Argentinian side. You know, and it, it would have been a lot different. You know, if if uh, let's see whoever blinks first. <laughs> um, we went there a disorganized uh, rabble you know and um, and ill-equipped um, ill-prepared but the one outstanding factor that I remember was we were the parachute regiment we were the best we we're going to be victorious, either way. You know, if we fought, we we're going to be victorious, um, and and we were. So you concluded this this you know part of your career. Um, I want to get to to Iraq quickly. I know we're getting very short on time now, but. What was the transition? What made you decide to go from the powers to to the SAS? Um. Well, uh, 
I was I was a, I was a hundred percent confirmed soldier by then. You know, some people some people take up soldiering for a job. Some people take up take it up as a career. Um, that was my chosen career then, and uh, I wanted to go the next the next level. You know, um, I wasn't getting on too too well with with uh, the Pyramid hierarchy. Um, I wanted uh, I wanted to do continuous operations. I wanted, I wanted to go somewhere where I could get more of the same. You know, I didn't want to come back from the Fulton Islands and, and stag on for two years uh, doing guards or back into a training cycle and never 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 go away go, go to war again. I mean, I've been in I've been in the army sort of uh, um, something like seven eight years. Eight years by then, and, and uh, you know that was the first sort of land battle I'd, I'd ever um, encountered, apart from Northern Ireland. Um, that was it. There was no Afghan. There was no. There was no uh, Syria. There was no. There was no uh, um, Iraq. You know. So so uh, I felt to get um, more operations under my belt, I'd have to go. Uh, where, where there was perceptibly continuous operations, and that was the SAS. So that's what, that's what drove me to do selection. So what was it about your physicality or mindset that allowed you to succeed in the selection process when so many others failed? Um, again, it's, it's, it's just mindset. It's putting one foot in, in front of the other. You know, you, you, people... Um, a lot more fit guys than, than, I, than I could ever be um, fail fail selection. You know, better soldier than me failed selection thousands of times. You know, um, on paper, uh, it's just um, an indomitable uh, uh, desire to do something, and I think there's no going back. You know, it was either. I didn't have I didn't have a B plan. I was going to be in the SAS, and that's it. I'm not going back. You know, that's it. I didn't have any plan. I didn't have another plan. That's the only plan I had. You know, that's the only plan I wanted. And uh, um, I eventually got 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 uh, got the honour of going on selection. And um, it's it's. It's a matter of, you know, the, the, the mindset, putting one foot in front of the other and uh, not thinking about the the the, uh, the big picture. You start thinking about the big picture, um, you know, you, you, you won't get further than a week, you know, no matter how fit you are, because your mind will be troubled, you know. When you do selection with a, a troubled mind, it's just like, it's like doing selection with a, with a bad knee or a, or a bad ankle. You just ain't gonna finish, you know. So the mindset is is, is has to be one hundred percent clarity in in what you want, you know, and then the rest falls into place. I think that's an important part of that whole mental health conversation as well. And I've talked about this a little bit on here. You have two parts, like you said. There's someone who we know is struggling. And so their path is to try and 
um, navigate some of the issues, whether it's early life, whether it's what they saw in uniform, um, you know, all the other stresses that we have in our life. And that's a very obvious path. And, and you find the right things that work for you and you get help and you grow from it and you become stronger. The other side of it, I think that you don't really hear discussed very often is the human performance side. So if you want to be an elite firefighter or, or soldier or whatever your profession is, you need, just as you said, that calm mind. So it's the same exact tools. You're, you're um, dealing with the things that are making your mind busy. It might be trauma in your early life. It might be some of the, the battles or the, the fires or the police calls that you went on. But you're, you're then using those tools to address that. So that gives you that calm mind. So with the 10,000 hours of, of repetitions and the high level of stress that you have on the battlefield or on the fire ground, now you're able to get into that that flow state, as it were, and perform at the highest level. So for me, the guys that struggle with maybe putting their hand on their heart and saying, okay, I do have some stuff I have to deal with, that's another way of reframing the exact same conversation. If you want to be the best firefighter or the best you know, operator, then you still go through the same process. You deal with the things that are making your mind busy so then you can operate at the highest level. Yeah, as a major, the training major, when, when, when he spoke to us, he said that the longest, you know, when we first did, started on selection, he said the, the, long, the longest, I mean, it's horrendous mileage on that course. You wouldn't believe it. It's just horrendous. Um, and uh, he said the longest distance on selection uh, is from here to there. That's the longest distance. Between your you ears. Between your ears. That's the longest distance you're going to have to tackle. The rest is easy. I love that. Well, speaking of training, when I'm thinking of training in Britain, I grew up not far from Salisbury Plain, so I know you guys do a lot of um, operations there. I think of the Brecon Beacons, and English winter can be pretty pretty rough, and obviously the further north you go, the worse it gets. So that, I could imagine, would be good preparation for a place like the Falklands Islands, which is kind of not too far from Antarctica. But then we begin a war in the Middle East. So what was that transition? Because you got into it so early from training in, you know, what would replicate the Falklands or, you know, France, Germany, etc. from in you know, the 40s to now we're on the um, the Middle Eastern battleground again, even though, as, as you said, your father was fighting in that in the 40s. Was there, was there a shift in the ability to train for that kind of environment, for that kind of weather? Um, uh, not really. I, I didn't. I didn't fight in the Gulf. I was in. I was in Colombia at the time on uh, on other operations in South America, in general. And uh, the SAS regiment isn't isn't uh, it isn't about uh, training for one theatre of operations. It's it's multifaceted, you know. So our training cycle, an operational cycle, revolves around different, continuous different terrains, desert, heat, cold, um, Arctic, you know, so you're pretty much trained up for, for everything. So uh, my experiences uh, in Iraq from perspective of it as a PMC, which was, was uh, straight after Gulf Two, two 2003, we entered Iraq as a, as a, from from um, Kuwait into a, a devastated war landscape, you know, 
which was uh, pretty pretty horrendous. You know, the leftovers from war still there, trying about corpses. You know, as you as you as you moved inland, you know, baked baked by the the sun, the debris of of, of war, and uh, all the way to all the way to Baghdad, completely different environment from a from a Falklands environment. What made you transition out of the SAS and and begin the road contracting? Well, I, I retired when I was uh, um, forty-two from from the regiment, and uh, and and went into contracting almost immediately. You know, um, after two years in and out of Iraq, for instance, uh, it was a pretty hectic, busy time. Uh, we went into. Um, I, I just uh, started my own company, um, and then and went into the training business of, of, of uh, training PMCs uh, in both, you know, tactics and education. So, what have you seen? Because I mean, there's obviously been, I'm sure, a huge amount of uh, members of the contracting world that have done incredible things overseas, but we were exposed again through the media, through some of the the dark side of early contracting. I don't know if that was specifically Blackwater or if it was other um, agencies as well, but there seemed to have been through the war in the Middle East a kind of evolution of the role of the contractor and the parameters that they can operate in. What what did you see through your British eyes? Well, the, you know, the contractor business is, is essentially um, uh, protection, protection business. You know, it's, 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 it's the business of protection, uh, it's not. It's not um, um, offensive operations. You know, uh, that's where Blackwater went wrong. Was because they they um, um, they went in with the with, with 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 the impression that they were going into a um, an offensive operational role, which 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 maybe they felt they wanted to create. Um, uh, for whatever reason, but the, the the fact was, the fact is, you know, contracting is is protecting people from A to B. Um, it's, it's no it's no different than than protecting as a bodyguard, protecting a, a, a you on the streets of London, um, uh, uh, protecting somebody on the streets of uh, Baghdad, except that you're armed. That's the only difference. So the skills, drills, tactical procedures are all the same. And um, uh, the thing that got me into it was uh, initially, initial deployments were ex sort of specialists in their field, particularly our lot. And uh, but there's there's only so many people you can you can recruit on an operation like that from different as as the as the uh, the um, contracting business uh, developed. Multiple companies developed, corporations developed. Um, you need more and more people. There isn't enough. There isn't uh, uh, enough special for, former special forces, airborne marines, uh, the specialist infantry. Um, you know, so uh, that that that's had some kind of specialist skill, and they they sort of seamlessly walked into that business, but. Um, it's, it's, it's not, the number isn't finite. So uh, you have to start recruiting from elsewhere. 
And this, this, this became a problem because you were deploying people that weren't trained for that environment, either trained in the desert, trained with communication skills, trained with um, um, advanced gun training uh, for, for the purposes of protection. <clears throat> um, I identified this quite early on, and I thought, uh, well, you know, I've been trained by the best in my eyes at the time on uh, uh, the bodyguard business <coughs> in Hereford. Um, I could pass that on, uh, add a gun training element to it in, in uh, Poland or Czech Republic at the time, and, uh, and make some serious money. And, uh, and that's what we did. Well, you made a, a comment earlier about yeah, the, the, the Iraq and the Afghani war being very different than um, Falklands, for example. You know, you, you've definitely shown that it's not an anti-war sentiment in this whole conversation, that there are times, and I would argue World War II is a prime example, where we have to take up arms and, and fight a true tyrant. But there's been a lot of, like I said earlier, a lot of um, emotional turmoil about Iraq, about Afghanistan, you know, from from the reason that we were supposedly sent there initially to what should have been seemingly a short conflict with a lot of special operations communities and then, you know, leaving again versus the 20 years that we stayed in Afghanistan. So contrasting Falklands, you know, and you've been in Iraq as a contractor for a long time. Talk to me about just your own philosophy on those two conflicts versus the one that you were involved early in your career. Uh, well, the, the, the um, you know, Iraq came came from a, a you know a, a political doctrine you know um, created uh, for whatever reason by um, Tony Blair and and Bush you know <coughs> excuse me and uh, and this alliance that 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 that, that grew into a um, you know a historic lie, you know, that, that uh, there were we weapons of mass destruction in, in, in Iraq and and, uh, and uh, Saddam Hussein was going to deploy them, uh, you know, too sweet to uh, the Western world. No proof for that. Um, nobody knows why they wanted him deposed. Nobody knows why. There, there's all kinds of... Um, Conspiracy theories on 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 finance, you know, um, with with uh, you know Iraq having having its own currency and not and doing well and not being reliant on the dollar or sterling, you know those kind of conspiracy theories. I'm not a fan of them, but you know there is still no one hundred percent reason why. Um, uh, the Western world um, moved on Iraq, you know. Uh, consequently, it was a it was a glorious victory, you know, very well performed by all arms involved. Um, destroyed the, the the Iraqi armed forces, which you know the joint British and and uh, American operation couldn't do that. You know, we'd have to retire both armies, wouldn't we? <clears throat> and uh, and then the bullshit started. The patrols 
the 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 the, the hearts and minds, the the uh, um, the indoctrination, the attempted indoctrination of of, uh, um, of, a, of an Islamic culture um, to be brought brought to heal by um, uh, a Christian culture, which essentially we are. You know, it was a bit it was a bit imperialist if you like, you know. Again, as a soldier, my, my, uh, I 100% backed the soldiers and, and the war's will on whatever they did. <clears throat> and uh, the politics were, 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 were pretty rotten at, at, the, at the get-go, at the onset, and then they continue to be uh, rotten over the years as uh, expose after expose will pay testament to and uh, um, at the end of the, the conflict, you know, nothing has been achieved. Absolutely nothing. You know, I know contractors out there now who have been there since 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 I was there in zero three. They're still out there, and nothing's changed. Nothing. There's still power cuts. There's still corruption. There's still uh, sectarian killings. Um, it's it's. It's pretty safe. I mean, you can fly to uh, Baghdad tomorrow, you know, and we'll be safe. We'll be safe, you know. Book into a hotel and have a good time around. I uh, wouldn't go anywhere at night, but certainly during the day. Um, there's, there, there's no reason to attack us, you know. Um, they kill each other a lot still. This is from reports I get from... from uh, uh, from people who are still out there, um, lot, lots of sectarian uh, killings going on uh, because of the several sort of um, factions of, 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 of the Islamic faith. Um, but for a Westerner, it's, it's you know business as usual, but corruption is there as usual, and and nothing gets done. Nothing gets done. Um, uh, the infrastructure hasn't moved on in 20 years, you know. So uh, um, the media are obsessed with blaming somebody but their own agenda, you know. Again, who do they go for? The soldiers on the ground, the troops, the privates. You know that uh, that have nobody to fight for them. <clears throat> you know, no senior officers, no officers to be seen, no no uh, no politicians to be seen, um, uh, no 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 media support, uh, nothing, just unbridled attacks on uh, something they did all those years ago, which is unfounded. Investigated and cleared at the time there was a misdemeanor, which they rightly so. <clears throat> and uh, uh, but no, you know, they 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 want blood, and uh, you know, it's 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 uh, newspaper after newspaper reporting bullshit story after bullshit story again and again, um, uh, found to be wanting, and. Um, and it still goes on.
you know, no protection from the government. And they wonder, they wonder why it drives people nuts. You know? Completely pointless effort at the end of the day. We never earned a penny. You know, at least, at least, at least in the old imperial days, we we earned money out of it. You know, contractors have earned money out of it. You know, hundreds of thousands, millions. People like me, me and you, making millions out of the system, contracting system. You know, we're doing job protecting people out there, the, the uh, Westerners and locals, um, in and out of Iraq. And around the right, you know, but it's the same as, uh, um, as I say, you know, you know, Afghan was even worse, you know, glorious initial uh, battle and victory, you know, and uh, 10,000 uh, British soldiers in, well, I think there was about 30,000 in Helmand, wasn't there, at some point. Um, you know, held the Taliban at bay for 20 years, you know, complete stalemate. We couldn't have made it, we couldn't make any, any, uh, there was no strategic, um, uh, uh, option. There was no, there, there was no strategic outcome, you know, we were just there. No strategic outcome. Um, again, trying to trying to impose um, Christian values, Western values, on uh, an, Islam, an Islamic state. Completely different. You know, they don't want it. You know, they don't want um, to be Europeans. They don't want to be British. They don't want to be American. They're Afghans. They're Afghans. You know, let them get on with it. <clears throat> you know, I thought, I thought we may, may have learned something from, uh, from, uh, from our Victorian history, you know, and, and the, the, the days of um, our involvement, um, involvement in Afghanistan, then, you know, at least there was a reason then, you know, at least there was a reason British troops were in Afghanistan then, you know, and that was to stop the, the stop the Russians getting into India, you know, unopposed. And again, that went terribly wrong for the Russians and us, you know. Um, tried to subdue an unsubduable nation, you can destroy it, uh, but then there's nothing anyway, so what's the point? Yeah. Well, something I've heard as well from a lot of people is that, you know, that we call it Afghanistan, but there's all these tribes. I mean, there's, you know, hundreds of tribes that are all have their own elders and their own ways of being. And we're looking at it as an entire nation where it's not. It's a group of small nations in one kind of bordered country. And there's, it's their, it's their culture. It's their life. It's their, it's their history. You know, none of our business. You know, let them get on with it. And, uh, you know, we just create problems for them and create problems for, create more problems 
than, than the locals already have. You know, it's, it's, it's our values, education, human rights. That's their, our values. Nobody else's, you know. If we don't want their values, then fine. I don't want to be, uh, I, don't, I don't want to live there, you know, and you wouldn't either. But why should, they, why should we force them to try and live in, in uh, the, way, the way we live and believe in what we believe in? It doesn't make sense, you know. Absolutely. Well, you've got obviously a lot of, you know, members of the British military now transitioning out. You know, thank God we are out of any conflicts at the moment, at least the ones that we, the average person knows about. Um, talk to me about Ronin Concepts and, and what you offer to civilians or some of our veterans to be able to take their skill set and apply it in a more uh, positive way than some of the things that we've discussed in the recent um, conflicts in the Middle East. Yeah, it's... Um yeah, I mean, we, we, offer, we offer medical training, close protection training, SIA license, licenses, um, and uh, we have them. We've used the same MO um, for a long time, and uh, people, have, people have tried to copy the MO and, uh, and failed on a regular basis, you know. We're still the only, only, only company that do the, the, the medical training, CP training, and the gun training as a water if they if they want it, you know. Um, all those skills are either hired in or bought in by different outfits to fulfill other courses. But you know, um, when we started business, there was there was probably um, ten close protection companies in the country. Now there's probably about five hundred, all selling the same thing, you know. But uh, <clears throat> Um, it's you know the security world. There's lots of there's, there's lots of work out there at the moment, uh, not necessarily in in, uh, in in Iraq, Afghan. There is work out there, but um, it's 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 pretty limited at the moment. Uh, it wasn't ten years ago, obviously. It is now, but it's a big world, you know. I, I guide people try and guide people away from, uh, yes, opportunities out there. Uh, it's got to be all and end, end all of this business. There's a lot of money, more money, in fact, in Europe, in America, with, with, with the same skills. <clears throat> in the UK, you know, um, the UK is pretty, pretty lawless at the moment, you know. Um, the police don't react. They, 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 you know, they don't answer burglars. They don't uh, um, give very little support to 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 the public. Um, they can't protect the public. They can't or won't protect the public. People have to protect themselves. And uh, the the um, you know we do offer uh, that kind of protection training. You know, not to turn everybody into an operator, but to give anybody a set of life skills <coughs> so I'm going to be drawing um, a set of life skills to be able to spot a problem before before it arises you know and uh, and be able to defend themselves from that threat and uh, it's 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 
um, in the industry, uh, the bodyguard industry, because of the, the lack of uh, police, the lack of law and order in this country, security companies are booming all over the, all over the country, all over the world. <clears throat> and it's an excellent business to be in. You, you know, like-minded people. Um, it's, a, it's a better transition into, into the security business from the military than it is uh, to go into any other um, walk of civilian life. Whatever um, people do, if they, if they can find a niche in civilian life, fine. If they're struggling, go into security business. You know, that's what I'd advise. And uh, for a very little outlay, there's a lifetime career. You know, I've had a lifetime career, and um, I, 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 I wouldn't do anything else. I'm still doing it. The phone keeps on ringing, you know. Um, I'm starting a, a big contract abroad um, soon uh, for a couple of years, in and out. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's not classified. It's restricted at the moment. Um, so I don't want to talk about it on air, but it's a big contract, and uh, it's it's we're committing a lot of Ronin concepts assets to that. Only <coughs> two years, and uh, hopefully it'll go on. So you know, um, uh, the phone keeps on ringing. So as long as it keeps on ringing, I'll keep on answering it. Um, and it is a good business to be in at the moment. Well, I want to hit just one topic and then we'll, we'll wrap up and we'll be mindful of your time. But you just hit on it for a second. It's something that's strange to watch. Now I live in the US, but, you know, obviously I was born and bred in the UK of the seemingly devolution of law enforcement. I've had, you know, friends that are armed response officers from the UK and getting their perception perception of the seemingly dwindling support of, of their ability to do their job. You have this, again, this timeline of... of time in uniform you know and obviously your skill set is to this day still being applied on the protection side what is your view on the way that the the british police system has been supported or torn apart over the last few decades well it's 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 terrible you know i'm relying on the police to protect um anybody on the streets you know they're, they're they are reactive they're, they are a reactive force. They're not proactive force. Um, they are there to pick up the pieces, you know. Uh, nobody tackling immigration. Nobody tackling organized organized crime, you know. And organized crime is sweeping the country. Uh, as a consequence, people can't rely on the police for protection. Um, uh, they go to see private security companies for, for protection, not just, not just corporations, billionaires, millionaires, people like me and you, you know. Um, and and uh, I will cut the, you know, cut the cut the cloth to fit the pattern, you know. And um, what I charge somebody else is not necessarily what I charge you, for instance, you know. Um, I'm assuming you're not a multimillionaire. You um, are correct. Maybe you are, <laughs> but but uh, uh, if it's if it's credible in my eyes, I'll take it on. You know, and uh, that's the way we, we do business. 
yes, it sounds a bit mercenary, and it is. You know, uh, nobody works for nothing. Um, uh, and that's just the way the the business is at the moment. Um, there's 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 no trust in the police anymore. You know, um, it seems to be a, a war on. Um, majority of of, of 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 the country, you know, with uh, a minority of, of so-called or perceived victims of um, uh, different cultures, creeds, um, backgrounds, and and uh, but for the for, for the masses in this country. There is just no protection. You know, you're, you're more liable to uh, um, get lifted for a, a bad tweet than uh, than burgle somebody's place. You know, you get away with that. It's not reported. You know, and the police are just always too late. They're always too late, aren't they? You read you read read about the police. Read case history after case history. They are always just too late. And we've got, a, we've got a learning curve, you know, the old learning curve, and uh, which never happens because it never learned because nothing ever changes. And it's getting worse, you know. Um, they're completely alienated from normal people in my eyes. And what, what's the reason behind this, do you think? Following political doctrine instead of what they're supposed to do is enforce the law, you know. You know, seek and destroy criminal elements. Seek and destroy, you know, um, uh, corruption and terrorism, you know, on our streets today. But they won't, you know. It's it's all about, um, uh, you know, within the last 20 years, there have been sort of 90, 95, 95, um, attacks on this country <clears throat> um, with people claiming to have an Islamic background, you know? Non-Islamic non uh, attacks uh, or Islamic identified attacks, about five. And the whole of the, 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 uh, the, the Brit police counter-terrorist role, the only thing you ever hear, hear about is white supremacy and right-wing uh, terrorism that just doesn't exist. It's a little bit, it's a little bit, you know. Um, and no border control, uh, borders are porous, wide open, you know. Um, we don't know who they are, where they come, where they come from. Um, every, every heinous crime we hear about lately is, is from an, you know, um, uh, has arrived in this country as a as a as a, um, as a as an illegal immigrant. You know, it's just completely saddens me. But you have to protect yourself. We're we're we're, we're reverting to to uh, barbarian times eventually, in probably twenty thirty years. 
Yeah, well, again, it goes back to what we said at the beginning. You know, a leader unifies a country and a tyrant you know, divides it. You know, I think well, that's what we need now is, is that unification. I mean, I would argue that most of these people that identify as whatever religion and they're, you know, creating the violence like that stabbing we just had in France, for example, is these. this is a mental health crisis. These were all were, were toddlers once, you know. And Excuse mental health, my ass. Enjoyed it. Oh, no, exactly what I'm saying. No, you have to be mentally ill to enjoy. You see, I'm not saying like he was a little bit depressed. I'm saying that with leadership, you pull people together, you forge community again. With that division, you allow this kind of violence to be perpetrated. It's not a sole, sole cause, but the more division you have, the higher ability there is for these lone wolves to start doing these sick things that they do. So we have a a cultural mental health crisis in the fact that we are being divided and COVID was a perfect example. It was separated like it was the trenches of World War One over a fucking vaccine. But then you're also, that lack of community, you're less likely to see the people who are truly dangerous until then stabbing your children in a playground. That's right. That's right. That's why people need to learn how to protect themselves and their family. You know, not rely on the police. Don't reply. Don't rely on the police. They will not protect you. <clears throat> you know, they will not protect you. Um, uh, that's the way it is. I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much. The uh, the two books that you've written, Spearhead Assault is about the Falklands conflict and then uh, Highway to Hell is your contracting in Iraq. So where can people listening find the books? Uh, well, they're, they're, they're out of print at the moment, but I'm, uh, I'm doing a relaunch this summer um, of uh, uh, three books. So it'll be the... Um, Formulating finishing, which is uh, counter mass attack, and, uh, and that's how to you know manage yourself and others during mass attack um, um, arenas like you know Manchester, or brought on by a terrorist attack, whichever cultural divide they come from, you know, and how to get you know. How to minimize casualties, protect your loved ones, protect yourself and everybody else around you. And what was that one called? You cut out just for a second when you said the name of it. Uh, Counter Mass Attack. Counter Mass Attack. Beautiful. Okay. And then for people listening, um, if they are interested, where can they find Ronan Concepts online? Uh, RoninConcepts.co.uk. Brilliant. Well, John, I want to say thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time today. We've been talking for two and a half hours, but I mean, we we didn't even touch on your time in Iraq and all that that element of your career. But it's been such a, an invaluable co- conversation. Firstly, I don't think a lot of us hear the Falklands discussed very much. Um, so I think that's that was uh, you know worthy of taking time to really tell the story of the the men that you served alongside, but also your perspective on policing, on war, and some of these other things that we've discussed. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Well, thank you.